out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Simon Fisher-Turner, who also goes by the name of Simon Turner. Also, um, the King of Luxembourg and many, many other disguises and um, lives. And uh, started started his career very young as a child actor in Tom Bryan's school days and was in various other sort of TV programme series, also films, but has had a prolific life in music and has worked with a lot of people. Anyway, so this is the interview. Um, try and keep up, there's a lot to take in. So um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Simon, it's over to you. I mean, it goes back to, I mean, if you're talking about pop music, I mean, you know, it was Radio Luxembourg and listen, my mum on the beach in Cornwall when in the, in the uh, hang on, 54, 64, 60. Like, we moved to Cornwall when I was about, before, when I was about seven, so 64, the early 60s, really. And so, but I mean, you know, I, I relied on my mum's radio for years and years as a kid. So that would be the small faces, the late 60s and everything down on my mum's radio, which would have been the home service or something like that. Yeah. And then... The Beatles, the Beatles, of course. Well, we relied on top of the pops, so the, 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 there wasn't much to touch the Beatles. I mean, things I really, really remember very clearly when we lived in Cornwall were um, uh, Magical Mystery Tour, right? Which, of course, you know, and Strawberry Fields, and you know, I mean, I was on holiday. I did a student exchange, for instance, uh, when uh, I think. Strawberry Fields came out, and it was a, you know, I mean, with a French student, and you know, I mean, those, in those days, singles were like, I mean, the Beatles were a paramount; they were like a, a national event. Yes, I would imagine. You know, a, a, a Beatles singles were like, this is fire, but and they just went further and further, testing your uh, your, your senses about what what popular music could be, because. Up until then, really, I mean, you had beat groups and everything like that. It was R&B and everything. And the Beatles, with George Martin, obviously, just stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched. And that's the beauty of the Beatles. So the first, the first would have to be, I would have to say, the first major influence of any popular music. This is not including classical or uh, power or anything like that. This is just purely uh, pop music would be the Beatles. But, of course, at the same time, I mean, I had a bedroom at the top of the house and I bought uh, The Birds of the Bees and the Monkeys and I had Dead End Street by The Kinks. And so, you know, that was my first thingy of, of you know, I didn't have my own radio. I, bought, I was given a record player for Christmas and I bought Mother Soul. So that was the first album I ever bought. Right. It's the same summer as The Sound of Music came out. I think for Christmas, with a record token or two, I bought the Sound of Music soundtrack in stereo, which really annoyed my mother because we didn't have a stereo. I just had one of those little damn sets, and I bought Rubber Souls pretty much, I think, at the same time. Right. So you, you diversified quite quickly on that front as well. Did you, Were your parents I'm kind of... I'm a, bit of a, I'm a bit of a chatterbox, I'm afraid. It's difficult because they're sort of... When you start talking about sound memories, I have... Fairly, fairly 
good idea of what was happening and how it all relates to everything else. You know? Yes, but when you hit that magic age that is 16, that was 1970... Were you kind of particularly getting tuned in, turned on and and dropping out or not dropping out at that stage? But were you kind of aware of that whole counterculture movement that had sort of happened from sort of 66, 67 for the next three years when, you know, suddenly we get to 1970 and, you know, the 60s seem to have come to a slightly weird end because, you know, Jimi Hendrix dies, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, then we had Altamont yeah. and then yeah. there'd been the whole Charles Manson thing. Did that come on your yeah. radar? you should mention them those and those sort of that quartet of events but um i was you know not not, not to put it sort of bluntly really i was fairly dim as a child and and you know not academically blessed with a, a brain for all seasons but when i moved to london when i was 14 so that was 54 64 69 i moved to london and I stayed in digs with which my parents had organized to stay with various strange families. And for instance, this is not in order. For instance, I remember the Rolling Stones playing Hyde Park. And I lived, funnily enough, um, opposite Selfridges near there's a sort of uh, there's a great big water distillation, there's some waterworks just off Oxford Street. But I lived opposite Selfridges with a family. And I didn't like the Rolling Stones, so I didn't go to Hyde Park, okay? Mm. At the same time, I did go on Vietnam... I did follow the Vietnam War demonstrations, which ended up in opposite the American Embassy in, in, in town, because I picked up flags and banners, which had been abandoned, and then put them up in my bedroom. Nice. So by this time... Also, by this time, I had got my own radio and I was pretending to sort of be a spaceman in the bunks I shared with the other kids I was living with in this flat. And so we'd sort of use, and then you tune into radio stations, you tune out and you get those funny noises. I mean, my big breakthrough, I knew about, so I knew by that age, I knew about the Stones, I knew about... Um, the Beatles. What else did you say there? You said, well, I bet you know, there was. Really, this the psychedelic kind of period as well with you know Jimmy okay yeah I mean you know I bought clogs I mean when when the concerts I mean a little bit a couple of years later you know I saw Grand Funk Railroad and Humble Pie at Hyde Park um, I saw I think I saw Pink Floyd at Crystal Palace I saw but a big breakthrough for me this sounds really really mad but there was a Record Mirror Festival in Olympia when Mungo Jerry had in the summertime as a hit which I think is seventy one or something like that I'm not sure of the date. But so I went to the Record Mirror Festival, which was a two or three day festival um, at Olympia. And I've looked it up. And the first bands I ever saw live were Stray and Rare Bird. OK. Yes. Um, I saw Tyrannosaurus Rex there. Um, and I sat on the what side of the stage would have been um, Mickey Finn's side of the stage. I sat on the side of the stage for that. I mean, I'm probably 15, I'd imagine. 15 or was I left school around 16? So it must have been 15 or 15. But once I discovered the Marquee Club, I, 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 and the gigs were gigs, and once I discovered uh, gigs, concerts in London, because I, I had money because I was an actor, I spent all my money and all my time going to see bands. 
And I can't tell you the amount of times I saw hundreds of bands. I mean, I was, you know, four nights, four nights a week, I was, I was out seeing bands. Yes. And, you know, figure out how to get the bus there or whatever. There were big groups. I could get my tickets from Edwards and Edwards, which was the ticket agency underneath the Palace Theatre at Cambridge Circus. But I was all over the place. I mean, I was seriously all over the place. So, yeah, um, when I moved to London, that was life-changing. My mother took me to see Manitas de Plata in Plymouth, who was a flamenco guitarist, who was definitely worth checking out um, on YouTube, uh, because I loved flamenco music as a kid. We used to go on holiday to Spain in the late 60s, because my dad was a submariner, and his submarines were based in Gibraltar. So we used to go to Algeciras and Malaga and Marbella and places like that hang out and um, I, I love Spanish music but pop music came through the radio initially yes. and then of course we, have, we haven't even got to David Bowie yet but, um, and that was obviously life changing but it was a little bit later that was in 72 I guess oh, obviously, right. obviously I, knew, I, I obviously knew Space Oddity because that was a hit when I was a kid when I was still at school right and I got I, you and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, you know that was, that was fantastic but we didn't quite I was going to say, because you you obviously, there was kind of one major part of this musical journey, but there was your acting that that obviously launched first, didn't it? So how did did that sort of develop from from your sort of top floor at Cornwall? Oh, right. I mean, the acting was really simple because I went to, I I went to, I was at a boarding school because in those days, I don't know if it happens now, but in those days, any of the services, the Army, the RF, or the Royal Navy, would pay for half its school fees if you went to a private school. Okay? Right. So my father, my father was left some money by an uncle of his, and on the, on, the, on the premise that he could only get the money if he spent it on his children's education. Right. It was a really, really brilliant thing. And so Uncle Jack sent us all to... Uh, through, with the help of the Royal Navy, to boarding schools. So my two brothers and I went to boarding schools. I went to a boarding school, my first boarding school, when I was seven, which was pretty, pretty, you know, unpleasant and torturous uh, until I was 14. Right. So that I didn't enjoy those that period of time one bit. No, well, fact, absolutely. The first, the, the first thing that happened when I went to my first boarding school was we were marched in front of a, a music teacher called Mr. Perkins, Anthony Perkins, and he, he run us through scales and to see if we could sing. And if we could sing, you were in the choir. So immediately I was in the choir because I'd been in the local choir, uh, church choir in Cornwall at Maker, um, which is opposite Plymouth. So I was immediately in the choir. So that took me into classical music, blah, blah, blah. You know, we could, and, and so I studied you know, I was playing instruments and everything at a very young age, uh, but I had a very open mind. Yes. So then we have to, then we had to fast forward to what we were just talking about. Which I've forgotten. Um, there was, there was two. Well, there was Ziggy Stardust, but you got oh, your. The How I got started with the acting. But 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 before that, you got your big break in. Was it Tom Bryan's School Days? Yeah, but the acting. Yeah, no, that came about because okay, so I'm at boarding school, and I must have been thirteen or something. And I'm academically as dim as, you know, a broken light bulb. And uh, my mother somehow had a message from a school friend of mine that he left the school I was at and gone to a drama ballet school in London 
Yes. It's called Arts Educational Trust. And that seemed to be a really good place where, because they were, my parents were thinking, what the heck are we going to do with this kid who's got no brains whatsoever? Obviously, he's interested in academics, and we just don't know what to do with him. Um, that's kind of how you thought in those days. Yes. Thought, what are we going to do with this child who just seems to want to climb trees and do bugger all? And so I was sent to the audition for this school called Arts Educational Trust which is a drama ballet school. I'd never done a ballet in my life, but I liked Scottish dancing and tap dancing. And, I, you know, the White Heather Club was on TV and everything like that. So I liked Scottish dancing. I liked flamenco music. So I went to audition for this ballet school and I got in. And immediately before I even got in, which would have been the winter of 69 or 68, um, I was recruited in to be in the chorus of the Nutcracker Ballet for the Royal Festival Ballet. Right. So even before I went to school, I was actually working as a kind of young dancer et type person. So because of this school was a ballet school, dance, a drum, drama school, they had an agent called Miss Fisher. And because of the way I spoke, which was sort of the Queen's English, um, quite posh compared to, well, very posh totally compared to Londoners, the sort of Cornish twins, and my dad's Irish, my mother's English, and obviously didn't sound like a Londoner and didn't know what called blimey, mate, you know, Rowlett and other fag and like that. Um, didn't really, but I was sort of, I suppose, the Queen's English, which in those days was very BBC. Because yes. of that, and it is primarily because of that, Miss Fisher started getting me stuff doing uh, stuff on BBC Radio 4. And I do, I do, you know, I play little boys in Radio 4. You know what I mean? I started doing a lot of radio work for the BBC. And then, I, I, again, through Miss Fisher, still at school, so I'm still under 16, I started doing TV stuff. And I can't. the first thing would have, would have been something like Tom's Midnight Garden for the BBC and then The Silver Sword, which is a sort of nine-part series or six-part series. Um, and then through The Silver Sword, there was... Uh, actor in it who played my elder oh who played somebody I rescued actually um, and he was called Rufus Frampton and he then told me about Jonathan King and then Jonathan King got hold of my parents and said would he like to make a record and presumably this is all because he'd seen a picture of me in the Radio Times or something with blue eyes and blonde hair and he went okay let's get on that teen market which is ruled by David Cassidy and the Williams twins and stuff like that yes and off you went and you got your that's a strange thing and off, and off it went you know very ne- really nearly very innocent very you know i mean you know that's if somebody do you want to make a record yeah i mean <laughs> you know, where do i sign i mean you know nobody yeah i mean uh, yeah of course i want to make a record do you want to be in a film of course i want to be in a film you know my brothers were at public school uh, paid for by the Navy, you know, they were doing, you know, I left school at 16 with one O level. Yes. But you... by the time I was 16, I had more money than my father and, you know, was spending it doing whatever I wanted to do, generally going to see bands and going to America and just generally, you know, going, just doing, buying records. I mean, it's ridiculous, but I didn't really do very much else. Well, no. And I worked, and I, but I worked. I worked very hard as an actor. I worked really hard. Um, I had a good agent, good agents, um, swapped agents. Did lots of TV, and then one day I just got 
you know, really fed up with it and just thought, I'm just loathing this. I hated it. I, I really hated it. But I was obviously interested in doing music and that that kicked in. I mean, at Jonathan's place, you know, I could, he had a Reebok tape recorder, which changed my life. So I could I could do my own stuff and mess around and make, I wouldn't even call them demo. It's just scratching, just learning how to record at home with something. I'd had a cassette recorder when I was a kid, so Dad brought back one of those in Singapore. So I, I knew that you could record sound and um, take it somewhere else and play it somewhere else and then record over it and do all sorts of things. So I think in my own sort of way, I was actually learning how to record music, which was quite, yeah. quite primeval but interesting. So when you brought your album out, which was kind of 1973, you were sort of... Oh, yeah, you weren't even 20 then. Did you... Um, so that, was it after then that you sort of became disillusioned with the, the world of entertainment for a bit? Was that the gist you... Oh, no, definitely, yeah, because after the, after the Jonathan King experience, you know, um, I, I, you know I, I just wanted to make my own music, and uh, he wasn't having any of that so I then had to sort of abandon that that approach and I went and recorded with Judge Dredd and um, we did a, a single which never came out which I paid for um, which was Hello I'm Your Heart I can't remember who wrote it but um, it was then a hit for somebody a few years later but um, anyway so I went with Judge Dredd I got on Judge Dredd I got out of my contract with Jonathan and then from then on I bought a Revox I watched synthesizer. I, I I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I called up my agent, and I and I decided that what I wanted to do was to make music, and I abandoned all all you know hope of doing you know uh, acting, and that took us up to up to 1976, 77, where I caught the Sex Pistols and the French. I mean, I knew people in the record business and I saw the pistols at the green because they live around the corner. But I'd read about them and that that all happened. And my music by that time in 1977 was unbelievably slow, kind of. I mean, by then I'm influenced by Dino's ambient stuff and slow music and uh, miniatures by Morgan Fisher and stuff. And just, you know, and I've listened to Terry Riley and I've got into electronic minimalism and. American stuff with Terry Riley and Beaver and Krauss. I mean, it was it was quite it's a, a really interesting kind of learning learning curve of where I went sonically, and I was a real music snob, you know. Mm. Um, there's no there's no doubt about it. But because I had the money, I was at the Rainbow, I was at the Marquee, I was in Peerwood College. I go and see Jeff Beck. I go, I mean, I go and see everybody. The Marquee was honestly my second home. I knew Jack Barry, who was a manager. I knew people who worked. Uh, Tony Stratton Smith, I knew all the Charisma crowd, because they had offices in Soho Square, and I knew Gail, who worked for Tony, and then she went on to manage Peter Gabriel, so I'd go to Gabriel's play. You know what I mean? I mean, it was just absurd. <laughs> and I was sort of, I was sort of trying to become a, a serious musician. It was really interesting. And, you know, people were helping me along the way, which was really, which was really kind of them because they could see that that was actually what I wanted to do. Yes. So when, um, after your sort of experience of seeing the punk explosion, then we had post-punk, by the 1980s, were your, was your next musical adventure, The King of Lu 
Luxembourg. Was this the 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 first thing you did in the eighties, or was was there um yes, was there anything in between that? You'd probably have to poke me in the direction of I mean of dates and what was going on. I mean, I started a label with my mate Colin through Rough Trade. I can't I honestly dates. I'm not. I'm, it's not very easy after what happened after the pistols. I think. Well, I started this group defeat. I can't remember when. Hang on, I'm actually in front of records now. Um, I mean, I've, I've had to pretend to be all sorts of people just to be able to put out music. So yeah, no. So what happened after? I mean, I mean, obviously I wasn't going to be a pump. Seymour was dying. I, I did go into the studio. I recorded some demos for Seymour. Because um, I'd been to America in 1977, 76, I knew the Talking Heads guys. And Seymour paid for me to go into a studio for a day. He liked a song of mine, which was produced by John Porter. Oh, and yes, John Porter. Yeah, I'd done an interview with John. John. John's an old mate of mine from years ago. I mean, it's that ridiculous, do you know what I mean? Yes, I could imagine. It's, it's, it's really stupid. You know, I've known John for years before he moved to America and he doing lots of blue things. But John's producer Smith, you know, that was what. But before that, John, uh, I mean, you know, he played, uh, he got Brian Ferry's band together for his solo albums and everything like that. Um, no, he's a sweetie, John. I can't see the date of everything. I'm not very good at dates, but, I mean, before the King of Luxembourg, I, honestly, I can't remember how it went. But do you know about Duffy? Do you know about this thing where I've been pretending to be a girl for the last forty years? No, I don't know that one. So what's your what's your what's your name as a girl? I have to say that kind of I've never heard that in an interview. So you're if you Google Duffy D E U X F I double L E S. Well wait a minute, what was that? D U D E U X. Yeah. F I double L E S Duffy. It's a duo. And we've made, what, four albums over the last, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years or something like that. Right. Um, so, because you do have, I, I was a bit sort of amazed and, and excited, the fact that you've got so many bands and, and come over under so many different groups, which was quite extraordinary because obviously, you know, it was kind of fascinating, Your you know, the, the Tom Brown school days and then your first album with Jonathan yeah. King. But then, you know, it was kind of the 80s kind of stuff that you did as well. And you were signed to, um, you know, Creation Records as, and, and you did stuff yeah. as the King of Luxembourg and then Love Letter. Yeah. And then as Simon yeah. uh, Fisher-Turner and then about yeah. a billion soundtracks. So I was just kind of curious how that then runs. But I didn't come across this other musical combo as a, as a woman. So, yeah, just uh, right. so what is is the the because um, mostly people try and stick with sort of the same name, don't they? Just just for sort of, you know, building a yeah. fan base. Well, I'll tell you what, Duffy, the second album came out in, the first album came out, Duffy album, Silence Wisdom, came out in 1982. And that was a totally fictitious group we had to invent from the beginning. Right. So that was fun. John Porter actually even played on the first album, as does Matt Johnson um, from Zither, who, of course, uh, was part of very briefly. Um, so there's... I mean, you should explore Duffy. They're quite interesting. And the second album we did in 1983. So that was because I went to Rough Trade and um, we knew somebody and he lent us a thousand quid and we recorded an album. Right. And then Rough Trade agreed to, Rough Trade agreed to um, put it out 
or you know distribute it a P and D deal, and and um, uh, I pretended to be their manager. And, Blimey! That's, um, so this is this is kind of the album's silent and wis, um, wisdom, and then double happiness. These yeah. are the two records that you're talking yeah. about in the very early '80s, yeah. which obviously. But, yes, but then but we still made an album just this last year as well. I can't even remember the name of it, but it's called Shadow Farming. Shadow Farming. Yeah, so we're still at it, and there's been another one or two even in between. I can't remember how many we've done. I think we've done one, two, three. I think we've. Shadow Farming, I think, is probably the fourth album. Yeah. But um, you know, uh, and and what what was the what was the creative kind of um, direction that you were going for with this this combo? Well, I mean, it means you could do it means you could do a diff- completely different kind of music, obviously. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because I was, you know, as I said, so so you know, there was I in 1977, and actually I I, I had a, a deal with RCA at one stage um, in 1978. Eight, I suppose, where they lent me lots of equipment in a 16-track recording studio, which was fairly ridiculous because I didn't know how to operate or anything, but I did demos for them and they didn't like them. I was doing demos for majors and I don't know what they were looking for, but it certainly wasn't what I was doing. <laughs> but, 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 but through that, you know, somehow I met Derek Jarman and started doing film stuff. And it's all been sort of accidental. There's no, there's no been, there's been no great big plot or plan, you know. It's all been falling from, falling from one balcony to the other, as you sort of, you know. Yeah, but you, but, but always, always somehow sort of surviving it. So John Peel picks up on the King of Luxembourg. So that's that that gives you a bit of airplay as well, obviously. So that's good. Yeah, I mean, I've never earned much money, I have to say, as a musician. Um, it's not really... I've been a dad for the last 18 years. But, I mean, you know, obviously I get commissioned to do stuff. I do... I mean, I'm working on stuff at the moment. Uh, we're doing two concerts in Paris next month. I'm doing... I mean, I've got old friends who sort of come back, you know, and, and go, oh, can you do... Because in a way, they know what I can do. But you have, you have, to, risk, you have to risk the fact that I'm really quite obstinate. Yes, but you know, I mean, it is, it is extraordinary that I worked and did six six films with Derek or something, because really, there's no way I could have demoed anything or done anything any other way, because I just don't have that sort of brain. And I think with Derek, it was just a matter of, you know, with Caravaggio, the last of being in the garden, Edward the Second Blue. That's five major major films, as it were, and. You know, I didn't want to. I, I had no concept of being a film composer. It didn't, you know, obviously it interested me working with Derek, but it's not wasn't an ambition. So I've never been ambitious. I'm I'm ambitious of, you know, working now. I'm ambitious with working with musicians and trying to get a record made, which is really difficult these days. Yes. You know, because for me, because I come from a time when, you know, you get a budget. I mean, none of the none of the albums I've made. Uh, say, before 10 years ago, or even more, 15 years ago. I mean, film work, you get a budget, you know, and so generally, you know, you get a budget. So at least I can afford string players, for instance, or musicians who play instruments I can't play. But when you get down to, you know, these days, uh, I mean, the the, the last decent budget I had, the last budget I had was for a film... In China, I mean, you know, how I ended up doing for a Chinese music for a Chinese film, I don't know. Well, I do know, but 
you know, and they gave me a proper budget, which meant that I could then go into the studio with musicians, record music with other musicians, and then, you know, you're onto a different thing. When you're working with the different musicians, you can actually pay properly. Yeah. I'm really interested in paying people properly. You know, that's where you, that's where the good music comes from. You know, if you're doing it all all on your own, you, uh, you, you go round round circles as, as pretty much, I think. But you know, when you bring into the equation uh, musicians who really, you know, you have a good relationship with and play with, then then you're away. I mean, even the King Luxembourg records, you know, we'd record them in a week or five days, record in five days and mix in five days was the rule, and. Um, you know, the budgets were, you know, tiny, you know. Yeah. But going, uh, can we just kind of going back a bit to the kind of the 80s period and when you were just Simon, good old just Simon Turner and you were sort of, yeah. um, you managed to get on Creation Records. Now that's a, you know, the album which is also just called Creation. It's kind of a five track and it's quite an ambient one with lots of spoken word and a cosmic yeah. journey really. And it, it also features yeah. Tilda Swinton, which is quite impressive yeah. and an amazing lineup. But this is on yeah. Creation Records, which at the time, um, with a slightly sketchy mind, um, you know, they were going through that period of, they'd done lots of indie stuff with my, um, you know, possibly Primal Scream and Jesus and the Mary Chain. And then there was the, the move into dance stuff again. And then there was my bloody Valentine yeah. before moving into sugar and then obviously Oasis. So how did you, how did you get a relationship with creation records at that stage? Well, really, I can't remember how it began exactly, but I, I live around the corner from, I lived off London field in a, in a sort of council I suppose it was a what was it called a, a collective like a, a local council collective. Right. My rent was four quid a week. Four quid a week for the flat, and the flat was on two floors with a big garden. I had no money whatsoever, and I knew I can't remember quite how it happened, but I ended up going round to Creation and talking to Alan and everybody there, and um, James. But I got on really well with Jeff Barrett, who now runs Heavenly gotten really well with Jeff and they're still friends you know and when they wanted to move from London Fields they were looking for another office and I knew and they wanted to move to Clerkenwell and I happened to know people who rented offices in Clerkenwell <laughs> through getting extras for um, the what was it? it must have been maybe Caravaggio yeah probably Caravaggio and um, so, I, so I knew the people who owned all the offices opposite the Catholic Church in Clerkenwell. So I got them an office, and then through that, I just talked to Alan and everything like that. And I did a, a kind of demo which Alan really liked. And I think we the attempt was to try to make um, Two Blood Bells Part Two. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> that, that, that was that was what was on our mind. But um, we ended up uh, obviously, you know. When Tilda said, listen, I've got this great idea. <laughs> I'm doing this plane journey by Manfred Carger. And, you know, it's all about... And we went, wow, yeah, brilliant. So we set up lots of tape loops in the studio. And off she went. And, you know, I've always respected Tilda's kind of... Um, I've always respected her her authenticity in, in the way that when she when she wants to do something, it's unlikely that it's probably a bad idea. So, you know, um, 
we went, yeah, let's let's do it. And we went along with it. And she bombarded us with this extraordinary text, which was, you know, a sort of pacifist dream, really, you know. And that was right up my street. And it evolved from there. The engineer, Marvin Black, who's not alive anymore, but he knew Barry. And then it all got crazy. And, you know, it got crazy and quite self drugs and some quite expensive in studios. Sasha Kamen, who's this young little girl who was Michael Kamen's daughter. Michael was a famous film composer. And it was just, again, it's actually kind of what I was saying. It's about if you can afford ideas and put people into the studio, stuff happens. And generally, I mean, you know, there's, there's a, a lot wrong with that album creation, like because we were really not on the ball. But, you know, the, the concept and the idea of it is really great, you know. And it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's something which I, I miss terribly, but um, I kind of, I've always gravitated towards people who try and go, yeah, that's a great idea. And you go, yeah, brilliant, I'll do it. And you try and pull it off, you know. Yes. Because it's, it's, it's about positivity and about, you know, I mean, it's, there's no doubt about it. I think creation were very disappointed about it. But years ago, I think Alan thought it was going to be Tubular Bells Part 2, which it wasn't. And he thought it, because they were all into the dance stuff. And this was an unbelievably slow record. But because I'd sampled a Holger, Hill, a Holger Sukai track um, as one of the main rhythms we were bouncing off on one of the bits, um, uh, I said, listen, I said, honestly, it's dance music, but it's just half as slow as you think it is. And the only person who I think understood that was Bobby Gillespie, who I bumped into one day. And he went, oh, my God, fucking children, you know, it's great. And I don't know Bobby really very well at all. I can say, oh, yeah, I know Bobby, it's Simon, you know, from creation. And he goes, oh, yeah, because I think... He probably keeps an eye out on what Tilda does. And, um, you know, but for me, I mean, it's a swinging record. It's like, a, it's like, it's like that record. Some of that's like a jazz record, you know, it really swings. But the Tilda piece is just a really interesting piece of um, uh, experimentation <laughs> with Tilda doing this extraordinary narration, which, you know, was fresh in her mind when she was performing it in Berlin. And it's by Manfred Carter, and it's a very, it's a, it's a passive, you know, it's just about, you know, what are you fighting for? Why are you fighting? What are you doing? You know, and it's just a very wise piece of writing. And it's amazing that to put a wise piece of writing on a, on a record, you know, mm. it's, for me, it's, it's, for me, it's very seminal, you know. Until it came in one day, we built her a beautiful, uh, like, temple in the studio with candles, and we soundproofed everything, and we made it look incredible. We had tape loops going everywhere. And it was, you know, it was it was weird and rather wonderful. And we went, well, you know, creation of pain for this, we're doing it, you know. <laughs> so um, did it, I mean, once it came out, did it, or has it since then sort of picked up an audience at all? Or um, has it not just... Not at all, not at all. Oh, what nobody a shame. Knows it, nobody, knows it, nobody knows it at all. Um, I'm sure Tilda's forgotten about it. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Nobody has a clue about it, really. I think I don't even know if it was mentioned in the creation book or anything which came out last year or something. I have no idea. I haven't. I haven't looked through it, but I'm pretty certain. Pr- pretty certain. Nobody really has a clue about it at all. Well, I'm sure one uh, day it will. Get, was, you know. I was going to say one day someone it will become a cult classic, won't it? And um, people. Will... Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it probably is in my small world. You know, in my mind, it probably is a cult classic because it's. But you know, we we you know, we 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 were severely self-indulgent and just 
we were working in, where did we record to start with? The first we started in a studio, which I worked a lot with in film and film stuff up in Camden Town. And then we moved on to some crazy studio in, in you know, South London, which was a thousand pounds a day or something, which was just like, oh, crumbs, you know, what the heck are we doing? Um, but it was, it was, it was fairly out of control by the end. And um, it should have actually, we, sh- we should have kept it together a little bit more, but it, we, said, we got kind of fairly out of it really. Yes. I'm, I'm never, I'm never really proud of things like that. When you, you know, it could have been, it could have been probably sublime if we'd been concentrating a bit more, not drinking quite so much and indulging ourselves quite so much. Well, it sounds delightful. But that was, you know, I mean, you know, when you haven't got any money and suddenly you get, you know, somebody gives you a whole lot of money to record, you do tend to kind of, um, well, I mean, in those days, which however long ago that is now, thirty years ago, so. You know, in those days, you, that's, that's what everybody did. I mean, you know, in the film business and the recording business and everything. I mean, Alan Lee died. You know, lots of people died just with overindulgence. And I think, if you, you know, if you survive, then, you know, you carry on and you go, wow, that was... Oh, that was a close call. Yes, well, absolutely. And um, there's a there's a tricky period, isn't there, where, you know, some people make it, some people don't. But if you make it, then you're good. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah, and that's I mean, good. You know, I've got two kids. Now. You know, I've got two kids now, and they're both one's 18 in the university in Edinburgh, and, you know, the other's doing his A-levels. And, you know, you just worry for their future. You just Because you can't say, hey, listen, when I was 18, the first time I took acid, I bought a picture down King's. You know what I mean? You just don't have to go into those stories about saying what you did. Hey, it was really great. I was with Marion Faithful. We used to do smack every night. It's just like you just don't need to, you just don't need to go there. Although it's very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Very interesting doing drugs with lots of famous people, but actually it's not a good lesson, you know. No. Well, I I always remember. When you're doing it, and and it's almost unbelievable, but the fact that, you know, most of it's true is just ridiculous. Yes, and I know, I know the, when David Bowie saw his daughter and said, you're not going out dressed like that, and then was like, oh, my God, I can't really talk, can I? Because at your age, I was looking even more ridiculous. So there you go, you have to do it. Yeah. Then, then we get I into mean, the... Uh, sorry. Uh, go on. I was going to say, and, and as we approach into the 90s, the John Major years, your re- recording output, though, you know, after that experience, which sounds like it could have finished you off, but it hasn't obviously finished you off because you suddenly get signed to Mute Records and yeah. they must look at you as a sort of, I mean, a bankable kind of artist who, you know, isn't going to just lose lots of money every time on a, on a sort of um, an alcoholic kind of haze of kind of self-indulgence. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, truth be the matter, I suppose... I mean, it was like that. And then I went to Daniel one day with a plan for, I can't remember which album. And I said, I said, um, you know, thanks for seeing me and everything. And I just want to say that um, I've stopped drinking and um, I've got this really idea, this interesting idea I'd like to try and do. And he listened and he went, okay, cool. And he went, good, that's great. I'm really pleased. Yes. And he's been totally supportive ever since without questioning anything, because, you know, I mean, I think everybody was very fed up with me in the 80s and myself and Coop just, just being just being out of it, you know. And there comes a, there comes a point where there's no excuses anymore, you know. I mean, so, it is a miracle. That, it was a miracle that, you know, I was able to do the work I was able to do because I was just drunk, you know. Um, I mean, I like to drink now. I'm not one of those people now, you know, I'm not, I'm not 
now. You know, I'm not an AA member. I've been to a few meetings years ago. You know, I like to drink, but I just, got, you know, I've got two kids and I have to look after them and the, the, you know, the flat and this and that and, you know, be together. But when I was a young man, whatever, before having a family, I was just out of control. And Daniel's really um, stuck with me. And I really like, I really like the way that, I mean, with, with Jeff as well, who I've never worked with, uh, Jeff Barrett um, from Heavenly. I mean, you know, these are people who I can have serious conversations with about an idea. And they can go yes or no and everything. It doesn't matter whether they go yes or no. But I can approach, you know, I have approached Daniel with, with various ideas over the year. And he's gone, no, it's not really, you know, I'm not kind of feeling it. And I understand totally. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, I'm slightly in a stuck position at the moment. Because for the last two years, I've been recording all sorts of stuff. And I don't know. Well, I do know what to do with it, but but nobody's sort of pounced on it yet. I haven't really put it out to tender. I've sent stuff to Daniel, and there hasn't been much reaction from that. But then maybe I didn't ask in the right way. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Because in the old days, in the old in the old days, I used to go to Daniel or go to anybody. Well, I mean, it's to do with the budget, you know. And you go, you go. Well, here's the certain. When Mute had it, the thing is, I mean, there was a wonderful, you know, Mute used to have its own studio. And it still does, but um, obviously through COVID now it's different. But so I used to be able to go to Muse and say, "Listen, I want you know, can I record for ten days and then a mix for ten days?" And that would be sort of, uh, "Yes, okay, we can do that." We just as long as I could pay the musicians and everything, everything was sort of in house and paid for, and we had a budget which we stuck to. Um, and now it's just not the same because the business isn't the same. Yes. So with your but Daniel's the same. Daniel, Daniel's great. Daniel, you know, I mean. I'm, I'm, as I say, at the moment, I'm stuck because I'm not quite sure what to do next. I've got something, I've got two or three things which are really great and they're sort of half-cooked, but they need to get in, they need to go into the oven. And every day I'm trying to sort of push a little to get one a bit further into the oven and not, but I can't quite seem to manage it at the moment for some reason. Yes, I know. I mean, it's not even Christmas and the turkey, is it? But, um, but when you were, because obviously in the 90s, I say obviously, but you, you really sort of capture the world of kind of, soundtracks which seems to be you know you, you've sort of done a lot of kind of those kind of ambient sonic kind of um you know pieces which kind of obviously work well yeah. with you know in that context but then at the same time you can't help yourself and then sort of re-erect the king of luxembourg and you did the an album in it was it 92 which was sex appeal so when you're in those different worlds you know you're thinking this is me soundtrack then this is me the king of luxembourg how do you manage to sort of go from one to the other and, and maintain a focus? Oh, but that's really easy because the film soundtracks only take a certain amount of time. And, well, I mean, anything that takes a certain amount of time. The trouble is now I've got stuff hanging around. But, um, you know, I mean, doing it... Doing it those days have gone. Like King, I, I mean, if somebody gave me... 10 grand to go make a King Luxembourg album, I could go make one next week. But the trouble is nobody's given me 10 grand to go and do it. And so there's not much, because I want a studio and there's certain musicians. I could just go now, I could seriously go and record a King Luxembourg album tomorrow. I, you know, I, the, the songs wouldn't be like the old songs. I'd make them modern King Luxembourg songs. I right. have them. You know what I mean? I'm, 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 I don't really want to do a sort of Thing. I find it very difficult writing songs, as it were. I always like to collaborate with a song songwriter, generally. I mean, I can start, 
Then I get to the middle eight and I go, oh my God, where am I? <laughs> you know, but on the other hand, what I really love doing now is making up words in the studio and use much more of a, a, a very approach to sort of having lots of ideas around, but nothing solid until the music's down. And then just do it all and do it really quickly. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, I sang on a the Steve Naive solo record last year, which he put out. And I just recorded the vocals in my bathroom on a, you know, on a, on a handy, on a little, you know, recorder, a Zoom recorder, and just sent it to him, you know, and popped it on. Um, but, you know, the days of going into the studio and, okay, let's, let's make an album to start to finish. I mean, from my point of view, they just don't exist anymore, you know. No. I'd love it. You know, I'd love to make a King of Luxembourg album. You know, if there was somebody kindly, you know, sitting out there who said, okay, can you go and do it? All I have to do is organise, make sure that everybody can eat at home while I'm away and go and do it. The trouble, one of my problems is time because I've got, you know, looking after a kid who's at school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So everything tends to work its way around a family um, timing situation and of family life, which, you know, before kids, we didn't have to worry about it at all. No, no, those days of um, hedonistic... That, that changes everything. Yes, uh, yes, you can't abandon. And when you were sort of, you know... But, you know... No, no, after you. No, I was going to say, but obviously, you know, for instance, I'm playing these two concerts in Paris next week, and I'm going away for four days, and that means that kids have to look after themselves for four days, everybody has to do it, and I'm not going to be here. You know, occasionally I go abroad, but it's getting, you know, it's, it's getting more and more the older I get when they've got older, they can look after themselves better, and so I can go away more and hopefully do more work, but, you know, <clears throat> I'm not, as I say, I'm not, I've not, not been really ambitious, but if you said to me, you know, I can go and make a King of Luxembourg album tomorrow. I can do a Simon Turner album. I can do a film soundtrack. I can do anything as long as you ask me to do it. Yes. Otherwise, I'm doing it at home. Yes. You know, yeah. I'm doing stuff at home constantly. But if you give me five grand or ten grand, I can get a beautiful string quartet together and record it beautifully in a fabulous studio. And you'll go, wow, that's amazing. But but I can't do that at home. No. It's not about... It's not about, it's not about not about money for me it's about what the money buys me you know it's, a, it's a, you know it's musicians you know I, I refuse to go into the studio and not pay musicians that it's just I, i've always hated that it's like do, can you do us a favor it's like um when the king of luxembourg funny enough went to japan the only time the king of luxembourg ever went to japan um we had a band we had a spanish friend of mine called tito who's a spanish guitarist who played in the first album and Tito, you know, from you know Malaga, and really nice uh, flamenco guitarist, really good mate. And he just never turned up at the airport. And when we got from Japan, I said, you know, what happened? Why didn't you come? He said, because you didn't give me, you know, if it, if it had been more money, I'd have gone. But to give me the amount of money to go, it wasn't worth it. If you'd asked me to do it for nothing, I'd have gone. But it was like, what? Why are you doing? You know what I mean? It wasn't. It was like one of those sort of respectful things. <laughs> and I just. I just, I just, I would always thought, you know, if if you want to work with, you know, a string quartet, you've got to pay them. And yes. if they say they want this, and it's, you definitely pay the union rates, and if they want more, you pay them more, because that's, that's life. You know, look at the musicians, they, they didn't go and turn up and play, play with him for all those years for nothing, you know. No. And, you know, you, you shouldn't, you know, you don't, if you're building a new house, you don't, 
you don't you don't not pay an architect because he's a mate of him. You pay an architect because he's an architect. And that's yeah. what he does. You know. This is true. But do you do, I mean, if you, cause because of your, you've got quite an, un, not an unusual, but it's very different to anybody else I spoke to, having your kind of, kind of teen years of stardom. I mean, if you were able to tell your, or give your 16 year old self any kind of wor- words of wisdom back then, is there any, what would you have kind of said to them at that stage? Because obviously you're in a bit of a different, you know, predicament than the majority of people I've interviewed. I drink less, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but at that stage, you know, when you were when you were sixteen, that was nineteen seventy. Then you have this big kind of break, and you know, you become a teen idol up there with you know, the Donny Osmonds and David Cassidy's. I mean, was that you know, looking back at that, was you know, was any of that you know, do you regret any of that period, or were you thinking actually that was no, great fun? No, I mean, I don't, no, I don't regret it. No, I don't regret it at all. It's just that I just didn't think it was very you know. I, I mean, it was fun, and I was young and dim, and you know, not not really a wise bowel at all. You know, I was a, I, I really wasn't. You know, I wasn't, and I, I, I wouldn't like to say that I was taken advantage of, but I mean, I might have been taken advantage of. You know, because of you know, I didn't understand the concept of, you know, I mean, put it this way: if I'd been successful at all that, I wouldn't have survived. I'm sure. You know, I'd just be a, a, a good old you know, casualty of, uh, you know, too much, too young, too, you know what I mean? Yes. It wasn't as though I was, you know, it wasn't as though I was, you know, blissfully talented and a brilliant singer, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't anything. I was just, I was just good looking, you know, that's the only thing I had going for me, blue eyes and blonde hair. Um, and that was it really. And once I'd sort of grown as a person and, Obviously, meeting Derek and my life changing into the world of film, and you know, uh, I mean, it was strange hanging out with Bowie and Angie and everything like that, and Bowie when they were kids and things like that. And you know, I went through, you know, I found myself in some extremely bizarre situations just through, just through acting, just through being what I was doing, and you know, um, knowing people I knew. It was just, you know, by association. It was. It was so, did it, you? I, I, did you know David? Yeah, um, very bizarre. Did you know David and and Angie when they were Haddon Hall, or was it kind of post that no, period? No, I met I met I met um, I, I met them both at the Marquee when he when he quit when he the the nineteen eighty floor show. That was the first time I met Angie and David. Okay, so you and were then there, I, and then I and then then really the people I befriended apart from Angie was uh, Ronson and Ronson's sister and everything you know. Uh, I know Maggie still, and you know Susie. I still know Mick's wife, and yeah. um, no, I mean, I, I, you know, it was Angie, and Angie was, you know, a tour de force then, and that I just started hanging out with Angie, and then I went out with this girl Daniela, who lived with Freddie, and Freddie made David's clothes. I mean, it went. Yes, my God, Daniela is quite Daniela Palmer, and then I was suddenly sort of part of the sort of David Bowie English fashion, you know, crowd of, you know, David's glamorous wife, Angie, and, and uh, you know, the party people with them, and I was one of those people. Yes. Um, but, you know, Angie was brilliant, you know, and in the early days there, she was fantastic. So station to station I was around, and then, you know, getting, getting moving out of England to New York and stuff. I mean, you know, I... It's one of those. It's 
strange. A couple of times it's happened in my life where I've been in situations of saying, but can you go and do this for me or something like that? And I, get, I turn around and I go, but I don't work for you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know that, but actually I'm not, I'm not on your payroll. I'm just hanging out. So <laughs> I do, sometimes I feel I've just been a bit of a hang-arounder as opposed to a, you know what I mean? But, that, in the, but that's been very interesting. It's been really interesting yes. hanging out in Twitter with David Bowie and Iggy Pop. It was very interesting, but it was very ridiculous because you go, oh, my God, this is just so ridiculous because everybody knows. But, you know, it's just... And, what was, and how did you find the famous Freddie Beretta? Oh, Freddie was lovely. Love Freddie. Beautiful, yes. man. Yeah, Freddie's... Uh, I mean, Freddie and Daniela, you know... I mean, Freddie was absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous. I mean, that house in Oakley Street was brilliant. Freddie was in the basement, and there was, and we had two. Then we had um, Maxine and Maxine, who used to do hair. One of them, then mm. Billy, who worked at Bieber's, and one of the Maxines worked at Bieber's. Angie upstairs, and Daniela and Roy Martin, the actor. No, it was really, it was really great. I mean, it was fantastic. I bumped into Alan Yentel the other day, and I said, "You won't believe it, but I've been meeting for a few years." But, when you wanted to get to see David Bowie and make your omnibus program about David in America, I answered the door in Oakley Street. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was very funny. It was really Excellent. Weird. And, and did things you... like that, you know, they were just, that was just sort of like, you know, I was still working as an actor then, you know what I mean? I was shooting off, I wasn't just hanging around, I was like there for three weeks, then I'd go off and make a TV series in Europe for three months or something. Mm. And did it feel kind it of strange was, was, with so many like Freddie just kind of disappearing and, and various other members right. kind of all slowly dying, I suppose, or you just suddenly hear one day, oh, so and so. Yeah, no, well, they did. I mean, people died and Freddie was, I think Freddie was killed as far as I remember. He was stabbed to death in Italy or something. Um, that's, that, I think that was, I thought what happened. Um, no, I mean, because David had moved to America and we had Zoe here in London with Marion looking after him. Yes. And, had, and David was doing, what was he doing? He was doing Young Americans from Station to Station, I guess. And, yes. um, you know, and then they packed up the house in London and then Angela, and then they bought the house in Switzerland and then they packed up the house in New York and David went to the shop and the man who fell to earth and it was all crazy. And then everybody went back to Switzerland. I mean, you know, it, it was all it was all kind of organised chaos, but... Um, as I say, between all this, I'm, you know, I mean, because I went out with Daniela, you know, who was Freddie, you know. Yes. So, you know, Daniela was my girlfriend, but she also had various other friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure how good anybody was, you know. No, I would. I, it, it was it was of its time, wasn't it, really? And did, I mean, because I spoke to quite a few people who knew David at that, you know, during his life, especially the early years. I mean, did yeah. he keep in touch yeah, with you at all? In, not in... at all, no, no. He, would, he, would, he wouldn't have known me from Adam. I mean, I knew um, friends of mine who, who knew him through this and that and everything like that. No, good heavens, he would, you know, I would have, I would have been part of his lost years, I'm sure. Jim would remember me, Osterberg, he would remember me, because there was a funny time in Switzerland when we were all playing together, which you you probably can't fail to not remember that you're playing with who you're playing with. <laughs> but, um, but um, you know, three, I do remember it. And, you know, I'm obviously, um, but Jim would remember. But David, I think, was, he had other things on his mind. I would imagine. Just, he... You also have to remember all this period. I mean, you know, when he first went to America, he was to when he went station to station and everything, and he was, he was fairly off his tree, I think, as far as I can tell. Nobody seems to remember very much. Jim was very, and also, you know, everybody was very indulgent, but then 
I'm sure there are things people remember, but now I mean he's never been a friend at all. So he's like, but you know, but but you know he was always very nice, and he knew he knew who I was when I was there because you know what I mean. I wasn't there weren't very many of us there. There were like five or six of us. You know what I mean? It wasn't as though it was a a huge, great big you know circus. It was it was there were very few people involved, and I, I was involved. I stayed well out of the way. But obviously, we knew everybody, you know, you know, Reed Corrin, you know, Corrin Schwab, and, every, you know, I knew the lawyers, you know, and, but, but that was it. I kind of tended to know the lawyers, Corrin, there was, there were not, not really very many people about it. Was, no. It wasn't a good period for Dave and Angela because they were getting divorced, obviously. You know? Yes, it was a very tricky period. But look, Simon, this has been amazing. And that, dear listener, was me in conversation with Simon Fisher-Turner, talking about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. If you want to contact me, I know, as if, uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show, and uh, all these have been archived. Yes, these long, rambling chats. But anyway, enjoy them if you want to, but if you don't, don't worry, I'm not going to lose sleep. Anyway, they're, they're available on Spotify, um, Podbean, iTunes. Yes, it's there. Hours of fun. Just fill your boots. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.